So, yeah, this paper is entitled Horizontalism on the Nile. It's, it's part of, uh, I mean, what I've been focusing on for the last five years, or maybe even ten years in a way, is something uh, I want to call post-colonial history from below, which simply asserts that even if we escape the uh, Orientalist and modernist forms of representation alike, we can still study uh, the uh, history from below that pays attention to social subjects that are imaginative and that try to uh, alter or change uh, the conditions around them uh, and that um, you know, pays attention to how those social subjects are freighted with, with power um, uh, and uh, inequality, um, but nonetheless uh, trying to do that outside of grand structural determinisms that we get in, in modernist theory. One subset of that larger post-colonial history from below is this idea of uh, transgressive uh, contentious politics or the idea of unruly collective action, which is the study of forms of contentious politics, protests, social movements, and the like in, a, in what I want to call a, an anti-foundational mode which means that you don't try to analyze uprisings and protests and forms of transgressive contention in terms of uh, the uh, forms of exceptionalist cultural essentialism that we associate with Orientalism, but also you don't trust any longer the grand modern, uh, modernist pro structural explanations associated with modernization or with the contradictions of capitalism. It's not that the inexorable processes of modernization give rise to contentious politics, nor is it that those contentious politics come out in some uh, clear and determinist or materialist way from the contradictions in a, in a larger capitalist system. So if we're looking at contentious politics in that mode, it also requires uh, avoiding what I want to call the romanticization of power that you see in some versions of post-colonial discourse theory which hasn't paid attention to the cracks, the fissures, the reversals and the incompleteness of forms of discursive and hegemonic power. But much in the, I mean, much in the way that Raymond Williams has analyzed hegemony, he's done it in a way which allows for reversal, reappropriation, transformation and so on. But it's also the kind of study that tries to get away from endless ambiguities and fragments and, uh, and, and blurring of categories and, and fluid identities of this kind, because one wants to be able to, have, to tell a story that's, well, adequate on the one side to large historical transformations, which are those that we've seen, but also to the kinds of intense uh, highly motivated and even popular kinds of politics that are also adequate to a moment like this, but have mattered throughout the modern history of the region. So I've been drawn to the cluster of, of, of problems and puzzles that, has, that surround the, uh, the, the, the mobilization, uh, especially in Egypt, of the, of the 18 days, which were very uh, dramatic. I want to say they were unpredictable. I want to say they were unpredictable in the sense meant by Charles Kurzman in his book on Iran, on the unthinkable revolution, where, and, and, uh, and to me it's, it's I, I, I've been drawn to emphasizing how, I mean, we have these three constituencies, the, 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 the liberal youth, the militant bloggers uh, who are educated and who are urban on the one side, and they, they play a role. There's also uh, those 
uh, who are protesting against the cutbacks uh, and the privatizations who are workers or, or their fellow travelers. And there are also those in the Muslim Brotherhood and elsewhere trying to create a more Islamic society. But what's, what, what in some respects has seized my attention somewhat is the, the, the dramatic mobilization of large constituencies that weren't, don't fall into either of those three categories in, during the 18 days. And if, you know, one might want to call that an explosion of the poor, but it certainly involved uh, figures, people who are working in the informal sector, like uh, Mohammed Bouazizi in Tunisia, who didn't previous, weren't previously mobilizing, at least they weren't militant bloggers protesting about human rights, they weren't uh, part of any link to the Muslim Brotherhood, and they weren't uh, uh, involved with uh, the workers' movement in any way. So, but it's these constituencies dramatically mobilized in, during the 18 days in Egypt who start to, who chant for the fall of Hosni Mubarak. It's highly transgressive in compared to the sort of routines and expectations of, of Egyptian politics at that time. And they engage with disruption and, and battles with the police and so on. And so uh, this is the, the sorts of puzzles that I'm drawn to. So in this context, the, uh, you, you, the uprising happens, Hosni Mubarak is toppled on the 11th of February, and you get one of the dismissals of the movement that, uh, 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 and the uprising that you, one hear, heard from various quarters is uh, from Marxists or from those influenced by Marxism. They say, well, they don't have uh, a, a systematic uh, socialist program for either in Keynesian mode for taking over the state and engaging in developmentalism and social protection or in a more radical sort of proletarian mode. Uh, from, uh, from Islamists, you have the critique uh, that, well, uh, this uprising was all very well, but they didn't have they weren't guided by a program, an Islamist program for transforming the state and, and, and changing the direction of social life. And from sort of the grumpy European historians in the government department where I work, you had, well, you know, they don't have a program, they don't have an ideology. It will limit, you understand that it will limit their historic significance. And, uh, I, yeah, well, okay. But, um, but of course it's a serious question, and, and the, the question is, uh, which is posed, and it's posited as a lack, is that there's no, what I think of, something like a hegemonic program. So it's, the, what, what is lacking, what is not present in the uprising, <laughs> is something like what Gramsci would imagine as a project of alternative hegemony that's going to take power in the state, that has a series of alliances, it has a well-articulated program with a series of intellectuals, it has a, a political ideology for transforming state and society, and it will impose a new direction on social life, and it will have a series of leaders, and we can think of these kinds of projects. Uh, that Khomeinism in, in, in Iran in the 1980s seemed to conform in some rough sense to that idea, and, and you think of Chavez, uh, in Latin America, or you think of Gamal Abdel Nasser in the 1950s and 60s. Well, in Egypt, that is clearly the uprising. Uh, you know, it doesn't it doesn't conform to that model of doing politics or what politics is. So, conventionally, we can sort of dismiss that possibility, and we can say, well, this limits their historic significance. It means they don't really know what they want. It means they don't have a well-worked program, and they're bound sooner or later to be hijacked by somebody who does, or they will, it'll re they'll re the whole thing will reverse, revert into some kind of chaotic 
violent forms of, of thuggery and, and so on and so forth. But, but my approach was, was actually to say, well, you know, it, I mean, partly because if you, if you address, especially addressing, as I did, elements, uh, people in Egypt, those uh, among the educated youth, if you say, well, you don't have a program, the response is, well, we, we, we don't want your program. You know, we, we, we actually, you know, we're trying to think about how we want to organize power relations, society, economy. We don't want your pre-existing program that we don't, we're rejecting this idea that there's some set of, of a doctrine or a set of ideological codes that can be meshed with state power, which will then transform society. It, it, and we don't, we reject that idea in advance in some way, shape or form. And, and so, so maybe the idea is instead of approaching the lack of a program as a lack, you can stop and say, well, maybe there's something interesting going on there. Maybe there's something more, you know, the, the, the rejection of, of what Gramsci called hegemony is, is you know, perhaps a, an interesting kind of idea. And, and so, and then, you know, you read the Filiou on the, on the 10 lessons of the Arab Revolution, and he says, well, leaders, leaderless movements can work. You, you read the interview with Ali al-Ragal in al-Jadaliya, who says, look, uh, you know, this is, a, this is a revolution on the form of revolution itself. We're not trying to do, uh, 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 we're not trying to seize power with an ideology. That's not the point of the uprising. And then you read Hart and Negri uh, writing in The Guardian on the 14th of February 2011, who, who hail this uprising uh, precisely because of, of its uh, leaderful features because of its, it, they hail it as sort of the multitude in action. They say it doesn't, uh, it doesn't, it rejects the idea of, of a single doctrine to which you adhere. It embraces the networked form of organization. It doesn't look to a strong leader to lead it. It, it, it rejects the idea of representation of interests in favor of a, a notion of deliberation uh, and, and communication in terms of how you get to, to interests uh, and on and on. And then one sees um, the parallels between this kind of, of political action or contentious politics and the movements that came out of Latin America after 2001. And there's a book, uh, there's lots of material on this, but one book by Mar Marina Citrin called Horizontalism, which goes into this in some detail. And uh, another, there's, there's, a, there's someone at Nottingham called Sara Motto who's been working on this in Latin America, and it's precisely those same features that were involved in mobilizations in Latin America. The issue of representation, the idea of a network form of organization, the idea that you don't have a, a single type member-based kind of organization with a program that it adheres to, and a command control structure uh, within the organization in order to prosecute your form of contentious politics. So. Uh, uh, that becomes slightly interesting. I mean, to, for me, I, I knew about this question of horizontalism, but I'd sort of dismissed it because I thought, well, we don't have that in the Middle East. But then, you know, you, you, one thinks again when, when one sees this. And then, of course, there's what was inspiring across borders with the Arab Spring. And it turns out to be uh, it's, it, it, that, that has been crystallized in some ways in the Occupy movements from in Madrid and Wisconsin and, and London and Reykjavik and, and Nashville and elsewhere, which precisely have embraced this idea of which it, it's not that they have a political program that they want to implement in terms of by seizing state power, 
they, they want to pose more fundamental questions about social organization and so on. And so it's very vexing because they don't have specific demands, but then, you know, perhaps that, that can also be interesting, an interesting way of doing politics. So, so that, that's the sort of problematic, and so I, I just, if one gets into thinking about how the, this, uh, the, these processes might have unfolded on the ground, I mean, I just have three, three sorts of points to make, and I only have a, a couple of minutes, don't I? So, um, well, uh, I mean, some of the points, some of the key points are, one, it, this idea of a networked form of organization. I mean, perhaps just the main argument I want to advance then is that what's interesting is that the way that the dynamics of the contentious politics that ousted a dictator, which was in many ways unthinkable from a structural point of view, I mean, in terms of the coercive uh, instruments at the disposal of the regime, in terms of the backing, not just from the, the, the EU, the major financial institutions, the United States, uh, regional powers, you know, distant in political influence like Israel, but much closer like uh, Saudi Arabia. Nonetheless, nonetheless, somehow, somewhat like Iran, which looked very strong from a coercive, administrative, and economic point of view in, the, in 1979, nonetheless, somehow, this was an uprising that, that, that overthrew that, 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 uh, that, that dictator and elements in the regime. So, and one of the points that Ali Aragel makes is that partly the security forces were flat-footed when it came to network forms of organization. They, in many, they, and the, the first, I mean, one of the first pieces of this is the Kifaya movement that you know, arises around protest against the succession in the mid-2000s, it doesn't have a sort of a membership. It doesn't have a center. It doesn't have a, a treasurer and a central committee. And it, it, it just, it has, it's much more loose in terms of its affiliation. And it doesn't have a specific you know, ideological program other than we reject the idea of succession and turning Egypt into a, into a, into a dynasty. But, and so uh, the security forces didn't necessarily take that movement very seriously. Partly they thought, well, they're liberal, they're wealthy, they're educated, but they also thought, well, they don't, what's their ideology? Where's their foreign backing? Where's their, you know, where's their, their, the alien governments and the, the, the subversive ideologies that they associate with? And so there's an argument to say that this kind of a, a, a form of organizing, which isn't just among the bloggers, and it doesn't just have an affinity with social media, it's also what pushed the Muslim Brotherhood to act, you could argue, on the 28th of, of January, because it was the energies of the Muslim Brotherhood youth, not the older guard uh, who pushed the Muslim Brotherhood onto the streets. It was not out of an organized, uh, vanguardist, command control type organization. It wasn't, it was much more likely to have been interpersonal and more informal connections among Muslim Brotherhood youth, which then were propelled uh, um, to, to get the larger, more um, uh, 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 vanguardist type organization that was in Brotherhood onto the streets. Where did the dynamism come from? It didn't come from a pre-established organizational network. And, and, and if you look, and, and this is of course the question over, over the militant bloggers, was it that they, was it that Facebook established a system that, that could then, that, that was then revolutionary? Well, uh, arguably, uh, you could argue that, well, we should look at how 
people appropriated Facebook, which was used for quite different ends, to quite to a totally different kind of, of project, not for consumption, leisure, dating, and so on, but instead for the idea of organizing a, a, a popular uprising. Well, and that, that reminds one very much of how Kurzman, in this book, The Unthinkable Revolution in Iraq, analyzes how certain radical on the map took over the mosque network in 1978 in Iran. It wasn't that there was an independent mosque network that pre-existed uh, everything else and that was a revolutionary force. It had to be taken over by a group of committed people who had interpersonal connections and who mobilized and created a site of mobilization to, uh, to in order to, uh, and of course this has been this kind of idea about how sites of mobilization have to be created by activists themselves is quite a, a theme in, in Tilly's you know, dynamics of contention, the, the, the less structuralist reading of contentious politics that he offers in that book. And then again, if you turn, so turning from the, the Muslim Brotherhood youth to the militant bloggers, if you look at what's happened with the workers, again, it's not a question of a, of a, of a, a top-down or unionized or formalized kind of organization that pushed through forms of protest that then led to the downfall. It was, a, it was um, as, as I just you know, confirmed in a conversation with Marie Duboc, it was a, when the workers went onto the streets, they were doing something quite new. They weren't protesting inside uh, a factory. And so they, and, and then, and, and aside from those three groups, you have people who had never engaged in any kind of street protest at all, who, you know, and I, I want to call it a kind of an explosion of the poor, which are those partly who saw their own kind of um, predicament as, as very close to that of someone like Mohammed Bouazizi, struggling to make ends meet in a household economy with limited uh, migration opportunities, uh, suffering from the indifference and corruption and bribery and thuggery of the police, and, and then facing a governorate that wasn't going to do anything, and then uh, 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 exploding. So, so just to, to make this, the, this point about a network form of organization, uh, meaning that it turns out to be potent in this case, and it turns out to be an important aspect of the way in which people got mobilized during the uprising, uh, which then had very efficacious effects in terms of overthrowing a dictator. So, it's, it, so that's, that's where one can conclude, is that it, instead, far from a, 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 a movement, see the conventional view, if your movement doesn't have a program and it doesn't have a, 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 an organization, and it doesn't have a, a clear plan for how to take over state power and change the direction of social life as a whole. It'll ne it, 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 they, nobody, they don't know what they're doing. It's hopeless, chaotic. It, it doesn't mean anything. It doesn't have any historic significance. But actually, if you look at, I, I submit that if you look at how people got mobilized, this is only one strand of it, of course, you can see that actually more network forms of organization that partly relied on interpersonal connections and that didn't rely on a given ideological program actually played a tremendous role in how the battle was then joined with the police which degrades a key element in regime power which then leads to uh, further effects and the toppling of a, of a dictator. So though that kind of analysis I think makes at least draws our attention to a, a way of doing politics that isn't quite the same as uh, the idea of struggling for a specific political program that will take power in the state, but it's a way of doing politics that's probably a lot more decentralized, a lot more directly democratic, and it has these horizontalist 
uh, features which you know, I think can, can draw one's attention, at least in terms of doing further research to see if there's anything uh, in it. John, thank you very much.